The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. If you follow the Folklore Podcast on social media, you will know that I was recently asked to write a new book on folklore and rural craft. This is going to be published by the History Press in spring next year. The manuscript is due to be delivered this summer, and I'm working on that at the moment. While you shouldn't see any big changes to the Folklore Podcast while this is happening, you may find that more episodes come out with special guest interviews rather than those written by myself whilst I'm researching and writing the book. This doesn't mean that I'm not planning to release podcast episodes also, but the balance may temporarily shift slightly. I hope you'll understand. This episode of the podcast is the first of two episodes looking at aspects of witchcraft, In the next episode, I'll be speaking to Professor Marion Gibson of the University of Exeter about her book Rediscovering Renaissance Witchcraft. But this time, we look at the role of the cunning man or cunning woman in folklore. Joining me to discuss this is my special guest, Tabitha Stanmore. Tabitha is currently completing a PhD in the history of magic, studying at both the University of Bristol and Exeter University. Her research looks at how practical magic was used in the late medieval and early modern periods of England. She looks at who practised this and how they were treated in society at the time. Joining me for this interview was my wife Tracy, who, as you know, writes on these aspects of folklore also. I began by asking Tabitha to explain how she became interested in this subject. I would say that the the reason I got into this research research and what got me into folklore is quite multifaceted. Um, I grew up in Wiltshire, which, as probably many people know, is a very um, wild and wacky place that has a lot of folklore attached to it. Um, It's got Avebury and Stonehenge in the back garden. um, So I spent a lot of time as a small child running around there looking for fairies. Um, And as that sort of interest and sort of just familiarity, I guess, with folklore as part of my life, um, developed. Um, 
I went on to university, studied history, uh, at which point I started thinking about it in a much more sort of academic sense, sort of why do people believe what they believe, what is belief, um, and how does belief affect how people behave, um, and how it changes over time as well, Like what, because there's actually a lot of continuity in what people believe now and what they believed sort of 400 years ago, which is really interesting. Um, so then, yep, so my dissertation at undergraduate was on male witchcraft and what it was to be a male witch, whether that was even possible. Turns out the answer is yes, or at least a qualified yes. <laughs> and then after that, I started thinking about, well, you know, if if we think of male witches um, and they actually existed, then what does that mean about the other kinds of magic that existed? Is there more to it than we kind of assume, uh, which got me onto my current research? So tell us a little bit about what you're studying now as part of your PhD. So now I'm looking at practical magic in medieval, well, late medieval and early modern England, which is not the same as witchcraft. Um, I started by thinking about witchcraft and then sort of moved onwards uh, from there to, as I say, other kinds of magic. Um, so now I'm looking at the kinds of magic that you would use on an everyday basis towards a practical end. So if you lose a spoon, mm -hmm. what do you do to find your spoon? Answer is you do some magic. Um, and what I discovered is that, well, it's not really a discovery that I made, but it's something that I found out, is that people would pay magicians who actually did this sort of as a service uh, for a service. Um, so basically now I look at service magicians or cunning folk. They're more commonly known as cunning folk. Um, I call them service magicians because cunning folk suggests sort of more homely, um, small small time magic whereas I sort of expand that into people who did very complex rituals as well um, in order to do something useful for their community or for a particular client. So I look at how um, how magic was used, what it was used for, uh, who bought it, who sold it, uh, how much it was sold for um, and how much it was actually accepted in society because you know we, we know about the, the witchcraft acts, we know about um, witches being persecuted and executed for performing magic. Um, but that's not always the case when it comes to more mundane magic, so that's more functional. So looking at how that how that fits in, into society and whether that changed over time as we get closer and closer to the period of the witch trials. So when we talk about the services that are being offered by these people, can you clarify uh, exactly what these services would have been um, within a, probably a village community in the most part? Mm. Yeah, so they did vary. They could also be in cities um, or in quite um, isolated rural areas as well. But in general, yeah, you're right, sort of village community sort of in um, setting. They they varied. They, they were very much defined by what people needed on a regular basis. So I mentioned lost spoons. Uh, that wasn't flippant. It was actually one of the major demands was uh, finding small lost objects, um, making people fall in love or feeling people out of love was another one, or finding a, an eligible husband or wife was quite common. Um, discovering treasure or finding uh, some, some kind of treasure or uh, goods that were um, buried, wherever it was very important. Uh, and of course, healing. Healing is um, the most common one by quite a long way, which it makes sense. These are all things that people need on a regular basis. They're things that if you can't fix could potentially make a um, person fall into hardship. So having somebody that you can go to who can literally magically fix these problems for you is incredibly valuable. And who were the people that were using 
these magicians as uh, as healers or uh, as a mechanism for finding lost objects and any of the other services that they were offering? Um, that is a good question. It depends who you ask. If you ask the church, um, they had quite a strong idea of exactly who was offering this sort of thing, well, who was using this sort of thing. Um, and their, their stereotypical um, image that they were sort of conjuring up during sermons or in exemplar was one of um, probably a woman, old, not particularly intelligent, um, or a young woman or a child. Um, basically because there was, there was a sort of propagandic message going around that if you employed magic, then you must be just not the most intelligent people. Well, <laughs> that's not actually <laughs> accurate at all um, as a representation. The magician's clients that I found all seem to be well, incredibly varied. You've got old, young, female, males, actually more men going to see cunning folk than there are women. Um, they seem to be from all kinds of walks of life. Uh, you've got incredibly rich people, um, even including certain monarchs, when they were thought to be employing magicians, right down to your lowliest peasant, sort of, and everything in between. And um, how did this process work? I, I guess... Um it was possibly different for people at different levels of the social scale. So so how do we find clients interacting with cunning folk at the poorer end of the spectrum against, say, the nobility or the royalty end? Um, that's a good question. So it seems like cunning folk who cater to your poorer end were sort of employed on a much more casual basis. Um, they'd probably be found through word of mouth. Um, in fact, most magicians were found through word of mouth. So if you had something go wrong, you might ask a neighbour whether they knew of anybody um, or just put the word out and see what who you could find. Um, and then you might employ them once and then never see them again, potentially. Um, you have quite a few accounts of uh, clients going to other villages um, that could be even quite far away, sort of up to 30 or 50 miles to go and find somebody. So in that case, there wasn't necessarily a strong relationship. In a few occasions, there were actually quite strong relationships. You see repeat custom or potentially a magician teaching a client how to perform magic and then that um, client going and practicing it on their, in, their own, in their own time, um, which suggests a level of trust and dependence that you wouldn't necessarily expect. When you get on to nobility or uh, royalty using magic, there tends to be a much closer relationship between the magician and the and the client in question. Um, I theorise that that's basically for two reasons. Firstly, nobles and uh, royals could afford to keep people on retainer. So you would keep them in your service for six months, a year, ten years, for the rest of their lives, um, if they proved useful to you. So it makes sense that um, you might do that same for a magician, especially because the magician would be dealing with a lot of uh, very sensitive material, potentially. Uh, if you wanted to use a magician to conceive, for example, then that's something that you don't really necessarily want them blabbing about later. So in that case, you might you know, definitely want them in your household so you can keep an eye on them. The other reason is that when you get to service magicians being employed by nobles, they tend to be much more educated so university level uh, education, um, possibly qualified physicians, qualified astronomers, um, 
and therefore they held a status which meant that firstly they could be employed legitimately for their other services Mm -hmm. and secondly they'd be the kind of people who were from a class who would expect to be kept on retainer and have a long-term income from the services they performed so in that case you probably wouldn't expect it but you know a king or a queen or a duchess might keep a magician for literally years um, as part of their household um so where are you finding the records that you're working from for for this information um are you using um court documents for example for when you're looking at the nobility or the royalty um and what documentary evidence are you looking at the other end of the scale with yeah so I'm taking quite a broad approach to this, partly because magic is, is by definition a cult, it's, it's hidden. So finding it in one place is, well, doesn't often yield very useful results. So I'm using a combination of church court records. Um, so before the Reformation, essentially, um, the church dealt with most moral crimes. Um, so any kind of relationship issues, any uh, problems in the way that people were practicing their religion, that kind of thing, was dealt with by the church. So that picks up a lot of minor cases of magic use, um, often at the sort of local village level. Somebody who goes and um, uh, employs a cunning person would probably be asked to uh, asked about it um, during confession, and then they get sort of, uh, given penance from there. So that's a really useful resource more severe cases of magic use so um magic which is used to harm um or is just a sort of repeat offense could be put through the secular courts so i look at those as well probably not as lucrative um as a source um compared to the ecclesiastical courts but you know not bad um and then i sort of supplement that with all sorts of other things so i've got um, a lot of early modern plays that reference service magicians so i use those diary entries, um, chronicles um, from across England, sort of before, before 1500, there's quite a few chronicles which sort of say, oh, this king did this and that, you know, wasn't okay. And also he definitely used a magician, um, which is <laughs> really interesting. Um, and you could say that it's possibly just the chronicler being slanderous, but the way that it's sort of put together, especially the sort of direct criticism of, yes, during this battle, you definitely used this and that wasn't okay kind of suggests that there's it more to it than just a little bit, you know, um, just above there. And what else do I use? I think those are the most, the most important sources that I use, but again, sometimes art and imagery as well. Although, interestingly, getting hold of an image of a cunning person is incredibly hard. I've found very few, and mostly they're very much tied up with witchcraft imagery, which isn't necessarily accurate, so it's a little bit difficult in that sense. Yes, absolutely. At this point of the the kind of portrayal of these people, both in art and in plays, um, mm. it's quite interesting. I want to come back to that in a minute, if if we may. Um, but also thinking about the fact that when most people think of service magicians or cunning folk, they naturally think of this kind of superstitious rural setting. You know, the 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 wise woman in the cottage at the end of the street um or 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 even you know living rough in a village or or wherever they are people tend to to paint that picture rather than the kind of city dwelling service magician um 
why why is that important so if you're looking at big cities such as london for example why is that important in in this as opposed to this traditional community image i am glad you asked um so you're absolutely right there is definitely this this archetypal image which is it's very it's very evocative um the idea of a sort of white woman either in the woods or sort of on the outskirts of a village but well, I mean, that, that image is, as you say, sort of wrong for two reasons. Firstly, when it comes to service magicians, at least, um, over 50% were male. So that uh, throws off one of the stereotypes right there. Uh, and the other thing is that, yeah, you actually had a lot more in, in cities, which it makes sense because you've got higher concentration of population. So it makes sense that you'd have people going to service the needs of that population. Um, and some of my research looks at magicians specifically in London. And I think I found about 100 magicians living in London over the sort of 300 year period. And for those ones, I can actually find the at least the parish um, and sometimes the address of where they lived. So why that's interesting is because unlike a village or a smaller town, London from the period I'm looking at, so sort of 1350 onwards, it already has a very distinct personality in these different neighbourhoods. So a pa the parish of St Giles uh, without Cripplegate, for example, already has a strong reputation as a very poor area um, and one that has a lot of uh, crime um, and actually a lot of unlicensed healers living there sort of from the 14th century onwards. The same with Southwark. There's this strong image even earlier from the sort of 13th century which says that Southwark is a, an incredibly dodgy area, basically. It's under-regulated, it's not controlled by the London authorities, um, and if you want to do any kind of crime, then you will leave the, the city walls and you'll either go to Southwark or you'll go to somewhere like St Giles without Cripplegate or one of the other sort of satellite areas that are growing up outside of London at the time. And if you plot the areas that magicians were living in, onto a map of early modern London, then you can see that the magicians were actually gathering in these not particularly friendly areas. And that tells us a lot about both magicians' position in society um, and <laughs> where, what kind of social scene they were inhabiting. It also says that actually that so not only are they living sort of just outside of the, um, of the city in the, in the dodgier areas, they're also living as close as possible to the city. So they're trying to make themselves as accessible as possible, but without actually sort of bringing themselves under the, the keen eye of the law, so to speak. Which, yeah, it, it sort of, it, it shows us a lot about you know, where, where magic is placed it's very shrewd of the magicians. So that, yeah, as I say, they're very careful to be close to their clients. They also gather along the um, the main highways into London or the, the main the main gates. So they are they very much know that there is a reason for them to be there, and their clients also seem to know exactly where to go to find them. So there's a lot of references in early modern plays to um, service magicians, and you know the, the the clients know exactly where to go to find them. They say, oh this person is going to Hoxton, uh, which is now modern day Hoxton, which is sort of north west of the centre of the city. And the and the character goes, oh, if they're going to Hoxton, they must be going to go and visit this cunning person. So 
there is definitely a cultural knowledge of the utility of magicians and also a cultural knowledge of where you should go. Which means that they must be quite central to society, but also, as I say, outside of it. Southwark, Southwark was um, controlled by um, one of the bishops, because that was where a lot of the um, brothels were, wasn't it, at one point? Yes, yes it is. Did, did the, the location of the magicians actually change at all that you noticed during the tenure of John Dee? Because that was who I instantly thought of when you were talking about service oh. magicians. That is a good question. Um, not as far as I've noticed. It's quite hard to tell patterns of habitation sort of how much they change because the number of sources is so low that it's kind of hard to sort of see how much they would change over time yeah um, but no well John D obviously he was based in Mortlake which is sort of near Kew basically um so he was he's sort of fulfilling that that pattern of being just outside of London but also accessible to it um, but obviously he was also visiting the centre very often and visiting um the court very often so he but he definitely clearly saw the benefit of being close to London and his magic and sell his <laughs> sell it to whoever would buy it, including Elizabeth the first. So were these magicians particularly integrated into society generally? Uh, or is it is there a divide between this kind of magician who's operating legally, for want of a better term? Uh, and the the um, collections in these more salubrious areas who evidently aren't, um, are they being seen by society in different ways? I would say they're being seen in different ways by different sectors of society or different individuals. So we definitely have cases of cunning folk um, being defended by people. Uh, for example, there was... A, a wise woman, essentially, who used to heal the heads of cattle, well, heal cattle, um, and protect them by uh, drawing a cross on their heads to stop them from getting any kind of diseases. And the people who actually employed this cunning woman were the church wardens of a small parish. The cunning woman wasn't actually prosecuted, but the church wardens were. And in their defence, they said, no, but she's a really good woman. She heals through God. And, you know, they actually went to court and that was their defence. So that suggests to me that, you know, not all magicians were seen as bad, but then you do also have stereotypes coming through in um, in popular culture of them being quite greedy. Um, there was also a risk that they were not actually the real deal. Um, so there were quite a few that claimed to be magicians and then their spells failed um, and then they were sort of seen to be forgers. So in that sense, and, and those, those magicians would tend to be the ones who lived in the poorer areas and often sort of disappeared overnight for obvious reasons. Um, so I'd say that, well, from what I can tell anyway, it seems like the vast majority were looked at in a similar way to how people then, and indeed now, um, would look at either prostitution or drug dealers, potentially. So by that, I mean, it's something that you wouldn't necessarily want to admit to using. It's not somebody you want to admit to knowing but also they perform an important function in society. Society accepts that they are there and they also know roughly where you're going to go to find it. And what about the way that they're represented within society? Um, you, you've seen 
Tracy's play, for example, before, uh, and that's something we've spoken about on the podcast um, mm. before a couple of times for, for people who haven't seen the play. Um, and Tracy's play obviously represents um, a member of a village community who is accused of being a witch. That That's one way of portraying these people. But then obviously you have playwrights like Shakespeare at the time who are portraying um cunning folk or magicians or or other supernatural creatures in fact in lots of different ways how are these people being represented do you find that is a good question and as you say it's actually quite varied i'd say um firstly tracy your play is brilliant i love it oh thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) and i really enjoy the way that um yeah you sort of you you piece together this sort of person who's clearly actually a cunning woman but then you know the the opinion changes about her um according to like the circumstances that she finds herself in and i think that partly that is that is accurate um there are quite a few instances of uh cunning folk being mostly trusted by their side their um their neighbors but then also being attacked randomly uh, because their image is just sort of twisted just a little bit too much towards witchcraft, then all of a sudden it goes nasty. Um, but no, in terms of popular representations, it it varies a lot. So one thing that I seem to have um, sort of noticed recently is that there are a sequence of plays from sort of 1580 to 1610, which all mention cunning folk, cunning women specifically. And the way that they're portrayed becomes more and more witch-like as the period goes on. So in the first instance, there's a play called Mother Bombi, which is a really interesting play. I think it's by John Newley. And in this, Bombi is clearly a cunning woman. She says that she's a cunning woman. Um, She just uh, tells fortunes. She says that she's only acting um, to do good. People trust her. They know where she is. They um, they seem to be a little bit standoffish with her um, and are a little bit nervous about what she's capable of doing. But they still know exactly where she is and they have no problem going and calling on her to ask for her help. She is, however, called a witch by several characters. Um, she lives alone. She at one point opens the door and one of the characters jumps back and says, ah, look how she looks. She'll turn us into apes. So there's clearly this sort of fear that she might be a witch in there um but as i say it's definitely on the spectrum she's definitely still more on the cunning folk end the next play um is the wise woman of hogston which again is a cunning woman who is helping um her society she lives outside of london she kind of fulfills the stereotypes in terms of what cunning folk do and where they live so that's that's good that's a good start but then again, she's described as incredibly ugly. She's described as old. Um, she's described as being quite um, sexually immoral. Um, so then again, you start seeing sort of more and more witch traits coming into this person who's clearly acting as a cunning person. And then in the 1610s, you have The Witch um, by Thomas Middleton, I think. And in that one, you have a full-blown witch who is sort of continental-style, evil, eats babies, goes on um, night flights, goes to sabbats, um, wants to sleep with her own son, 
uh, has a nightmare that she rides around on to scare people. Just sort of, you know, all all the stereotypes. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like it's almost a farce how witchy she is. Um, and she sells magic on the side to her neighbours. So you you in popular culture you seem to have this idea that actually cunning folk are definitely useful. And even in in each play, there's still people who will defend the cunning person and say they are doing a good thing. I'm really grateful that they're there. Um, I think they have a a good function, even if their reputation is bad. Um, But then, as I say, the there is always this sort of fear that actually they are working for the devil or they are um, a negative impact. And they are actually going to drag people further away from God by selling the services that they do, culminating in this idea that actually the cunning folk are witches, witches are cunning folk. There is no difference. Interestingly, The Witch, um, as a play, was deeply unpopular, did not survive many runs. So it might be that the audience wasn't particularly impressed with this portrayal, or maybe it just it failed for another reason. But it is quite interesting. That's the one that didn't get comes afterwards. Yeah, an interesting point that just came into my mind while I was listening to you talking about mm-hmm. the those plays there is that earlier on in this interview you said that there were more cunning folk who were men than women Mm. um but every portrayal that you've just discussed as being a portrayal on the stage is of a cunning woman or a witch female does that tell us anything about the way that um, the role was gendered at the time? That is a good question. Um, yes and no. Partly, I just named the one where one, the ones where women turn up. Um, so there are quite a few instances of men or male cunning uh, folk being in plays as well. There's a good play called uh, The Merry Devil of Edmonton. And the, the Merry Devil of the title um, is based on a character called Peter Fabel, who is a, he's definitely a cunning man, um, but he's a university educated cunning man um, who is best friends with one of the local lords. And he's a tricksy, fun sort of character, slightly kind of impish in the things that he gets up to. Um, but he also still performs this sort of basic function of performing services for the people around him and doing it in a good way there is a fear in the play that he's also associated with associated with the devil um but in this case it's definitely more in a kind of faustian context in fact he the play opens with a, a parody of dr faustus where uh peter Fabel actually manages to con the devil into giving him an extra 30 years on the planet um through his tricks so in that sense, I suppose you could say that there are there are male portrayals of cunning folk, um, but they do tend to be quite a lot more positive, I would say, um, and they definitely sort of seem to fill the wizard, magician, wise man kind of genre more than the witch. And and is image. that is that reflecting society though? Are are people more trusting of cunning men than cunning women in society at the time or or is this purely an artistic thing it seems to be an artistic thing um there aren't actually that many cases of cunning women being prosecuted as witches 
um, far fewer actually than turn up in the popular imagination at least. And the things that cunning men and cunning women are prosecuted for are pretty similar. So both are prosecuted fraud, um, both are given penance for the kind of magic they do. There doesn't seem to be difference in the way they are treated in the law, at least. But most of the attacks that happen on cunning people tend to be on women as you get into the late 16th century. So yeah, there's probably there's probably more cultural concern around female cunning folk but that doesn't play out in legal situations as much, I'd say. Okay. Uh, and what about over time? How do things change as, as time passes? So are uh, the people who are going to use service magicians changing in their methodology or the type of people changing who are using them? And, and are the services then changing as a result of this? Hmm. Um. So I'd say in terms of who's using Cunning Folk, it doesn't change very much. The services they are asked to perform definitely do, um, or at least the levels to which different services are picked up on by the courts definitely does. So there aren't actually that many cases of healing magic for the 14th century, for example. I don't think that's because fewer people were asking for healing. Uh, I think it's more just that it wasn't really something that was policed as strongly because well partly because late medieval medicine tended to incorporate quite a few prayers anyway so there's not that much difference between a charm and a prayer a lot of the time um and again it just, it just wasn't one of the highest priorities of the the church at the time one thing that does rise and definitely very clearly rises during the 16th century is the use of magic to unwitch so to remove the curse um of a witch on somebody. Um, so that's not really a function you see in the 14th and 15th centuries. You would see cunning folk being asked to cure somebody of uh, being touched by a fairy, for example, in the earlier centuries, and that continues the entire way through. But more and more, um, the request for help with about over fairies um, dies out and is replaced by this concern that a witch has cursed you instead. Um, so that's something that uh, cunning folk increasingly became used to help with. On that note, also um, using cunning folk to identify which became increasingly popular, which makes sense. Concern over witches was going up. Makes sense that you try to find out who the witch was. The fact that you'd actually go to a magician to find out who the witch was is a little bit ironic. <laughs> um, but they are actually sort of called on on a regular basis. And there's, there's several cases where you've actually got a cunning man standing in court and saying uh yes i can tell you who the witch was it was that person over there and you go that that should not be admissible evidence but apparently it is <laughs> who yeah. knew yeah so that happened quite a lot didn't it that, that uh, cunning folk could could be um legally put up uh to well for all sorts of reasons weren't they um, in court, uh, cunning cunning folk in court would testify against all sorts of things. You know, oh yes, that person definitely bewitched these cows, mm. or, for example. Well, I think yeah. in the research I've done, it was sort of giving the person 
who had suffered the loss, for example, say, you know, you believed that your neighbour had stolen your chickens, but you had no proof. Mm -hmm. You would go to the cunning man who would then scry on your behalf and confirm that, yes, indeed, it was the person who you thought was guilty, who was guilty. So it wasn't necessarily giving you new information. It was more giving you the confidence to go forward and make your own accusation. That's kind of what I've got from the Mm -hmm. research I've done. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that bears out what Tabitha's found too. No, I mean, I yeah, I found exactly the same thing. Um, sometimes it seems like the person didn't know exactly who might have done it. So, mm. um, yeah, that happens occasionally. But no, you're right. A lot of the time it is just confirming what what the person already knew. Um, and then, yeah, so there are actually there are a couple of cases of people being arrested for theft on the cunning man's word. Mm. So it could be an incredibly powerful tool. Um, there's also the idea that... Um, was quite a strong psychological tool so just the fact that if you said oh i'm going to go and see a cunning man about who stole my chickens very loudly in the middle of the square your chickens might return anyway (laughs) (laughs) as if by magic a different way yes absolutely (laughs) Uh, have you looked at the role of the cunning person in more modern times and compared that against these historical records because you know these services are still provided um Mm. aren't they in a community just in a different way and delivered in a different way um have you looked at parallels between uh the the kind of modern service magician and these historical cases uh honestly i have anecdotally i would love to do more um there does seem to be as you say a lot of continuity in terms of what people are offering and even in the ways that people are paid um for the services now so it tends to be payment in kind um on the sort of more local level. Um, so I was speaking to a friend the other day who is from Italy, and she was saying that in in southern Italy, there are still people in a lot of villages who you would go to to stop your child from getting measles or something like that, and they would just sort of say something over the child, um, bless them essentially, possibly sort of wrap some kind of fabric around them, and then send the child on their way. And in return, they'd either be given a small token thing like some eggs or something like that um or they just sort of accrue respect in their community from doing these things so there does seem to be a lot of continuity and overlap and then of course you've got professional magicians and i don't mean sort of people who do sort of conjuring tricks and that kind of thing but professional um psychics who still function and still have you know quite a good strong following which is also something you see in the early modern period so yeah there is there is a lot of continuity um I wouldn't like to say exactly how much because it's not something I've studied in detail. Yeah, but I, I did uh, find a <laughs> a charm recently on the internet. I had toothache, so I googled um, sort of uh, toothache charms, and a medieval one turned up as one of the first research results um, that people were still actually recommending as something you could use on your tooth. And that's the case, isn't it? I suppose because a lot a lot of the ingredients that are used in these remedies in the early modern period we find in the modern period are scientifically proven and this is something that tracy's been doing a lot of research on lately is i mean you can think of examples where this is the case oh there's all sorts of things should i talk about earthworms carry on (laughs) it always comes back to earthworms at the moment i know far too much about them now but um in uh some of the 
traditional recipes that I've been looking at from the late 1600s. There is a cure for toothache, which might or might not appeal to you once you've heard what it is, but um, they were recommending um, crushing earthworms and applying them to the cavity. And there used, there used to be a belief that toothworms caused cavities. So I suppose it was their way of fighting fire with fire. But earthworms have um, their coelomic fluid, which is um, what kind of churns the, uh, the processes the earth that they take in at one end and chucks it out the other. Um, that is actually being used, as far as I can tell from what I've read online, um, in cancer studies to see if it's any good at dissolving, I think it was leukemia cells. And there has been That's some some degree of success with that. Um, and snails also have like um, hypoallergenic and um, anti antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, um, not hypoallergenic, but you know that sort of quality. Yeah, you find mm-hmm. you find snail gel, don't you, as something yeah, that you can get now in the modern time. It's a very expensive beauty product. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it turns up in a lot of early modern. Yeah. recipes um for curing deafness or for for easing pain yeah. in different in... snail oil for deafness yeah yeah, yeah. so so <laughs> it's it's like you know what what people glibly term as old wives cures or old wives tales mm. or more often than not have these grains of truth in them that carry through don't they absolutely so, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely i remember um uh, it's it's a slightly, it's an earlier period, but um, I think a university a few years ago, um, I think it might have been the University of Southampton, they developed um, a recipe that they found in an Anglo-Saxon, uh, I think it was like like um Anglo-Saxon medical book, uh, and it included all sorts of bizarre ingredients like wolf's bile mm. um, and garlic and other things. Some of them were quite hard to actually get hold of, and some of them were sort of generic things like radishes. Yeah. But they developed this um, this mixture, and it turns out that it was actually very effective at killing MRSA. Oh, wow. I know, it's incredible. <laughs> oh, that's um, brilliant. So, yeah, there's definitely there's, there's a lot more value to these things than we tend to think. Um, so, no, I completely agree with you. Some of them are also a little bit off the wall. Um, <laughs> I found yep. a couple where you sort of have to stick your fingers in a bleeding wound and then make the sign of the cross three times, which I'm pretty sure would just encourage more blood flow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean but blood was important though, wasn't it? You know, I mean you find you find blood coming up a lot in these you know, bloodletting again is, is course of leeches. Yes, a course of leeches. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's often it's often about the blood and not not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean leeches are now used in surgery, aren't they? So yes, they, yeah, yeah, exactly. they clean they clean the wounds and take off yeah. them. No dead skin and yeah. stuff aren't they? yeah exactly these these things have like you say they have this continuity don't they um mm. tracy do you find that there are aspects of your research that are very similar here because you you've looked a lot at uh the village community in the early modern period when you were writing the play particularly and looking at um kind of court documents yeah. do you, are you do you find there's a lot of similarity between that and some of the things that Tabitha has been looking at with with the kind of city dwelling service magician, for example? Well, I haven't really looked particularly at city dwellers, but I can give you an example locally. Mm. Um, there is um, a 20th century, early 20th century um, cunning woman who lived on Dartmoor and mm. um, it was 
she was one of these people who, a bit like Tabitha was saying earlier, she had cultivated her reputation as this particular, almost like a character caricature of herself. She was a cunning woman, but she was also quite fearsome. She was one of those people you would go to for help, but you would tiptoe around her if you saw her in the street in case you hacked her off. And mm. um, her doorstep was apparently never empty because people would go and give her offerings just to kind of keep on her sweet side. So very much like you were saying earlier, you know, mm. the, these people were still in existence, certainly, mm. and being reported on certainly in, into the beginning of the 20th century. So there is that continuity as well. I mean, yeah. she, she sounded great. She really did. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying, terrifying, but really interesting. <laughs> it reminds me of um, Terry Pratchett's Granny, we- Granny Wentworth. Yes, exactly. She yeah. was very much so. Yeah, that's a very good, very good comparison. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's true. Uh, and of course, um, Terry Pratchett um, used an awful lot of um, good folklore in his writing and, and embedded a lot of these things. Um, and um, Jacqueline Simpson, who's a colleague of mine at the Folklore Society and a, you know, a very, very well-respected um, folklorist for many, many years in the UK, was, was Terry's advisor in these kind of folklore aspects. So most of what he wrote was coming from the point of view of somebody who was very knowledgeable about the subject areas that he was writing about. So you do find that a lot in his writing. Mm, that makes sense, actually. Um, I can't stand a lot of historical fiction just because you know if you see the russell crowe robin hood for example you just want to sort of gouge your own eyes out um <laughs> but reading terry pratchett always just makes me really happy because even though it's you know meant to be sci-fi the amount of accuracy in it is just really lovely yeah yeah and it was <laughs> something it was something that he took very seriously apparently as well and in, in the way that he went about writing these these books which is really nice that's fantastic and a, a, a last area that actually that springs to mind as well, thinking about um, the work that service magicians do and these kinds of remedies and things. And I suspect this is something that we'll talk about in an, another interview, actually, at another time. Um, mm. Is this idea that these techniques which are being used by service magicians are actually not that different to a lot of the remedies that are being drawn together by more civilised members of society, should we say. Isn't that the case? And you found this a lot, Tracy, haven't you, with your your work, that there are these reflections of um, cunning practices Mm -hmm. in um, family recipes which are recorded by um ladies and and members of society which um mm. are seen in a different way because they are you know high class members of society so therefore this is a a traditional family recipe uh mm. and the fact that it says that you have to put this together at the full moon and and tie a bit of red string around it before you do something with yeah, it or whatever, silk, or red that silk that one. Yeah. um <laughs> somehow doesn't make it witchcraft because of the person that's recording it whereas in fact the practices are actually very very similar if not identical aren't they yeah definitely yeah yeah no i've definitely noticed that too there's actually there's an interesting um case from the from the 14th century so yeah a little bit earlier but um uh a a charm is being circulated and actually at the top of the charm it says only share with other fellow physicians (laughs) 
<laughs> because they didn't want um, your average person getting hold of it and using it um, because it was seen as to be too effective. So it sort of, I think it works kind of both ways. You've partly got <laughs> magical knowledge, which apparently um, professionals wanted to keep, um, as well as the professional physicians collecting ideas from normal people, I suppose. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. Excellent. Tabitha, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. If if people are interested in learning more about this, can you recommend any good places for them to 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 look, um, including any of your own work that's that's publicly available? Oof. Well, hopefully next year I'll have some more work publicly available. Um, at the moment, it's all in production. Um, but no, so I'd actually I'd recommend most of the works by my uh, PhD supervisors. So um, Ronald Hutton brought out a book, I think it was last year, um, called uh, uh, The Witch, A History of Fear, which is really interesting and it gives a nice overview of um, a lot of sort of witch history, including service magicians, um, which is really good. And also Catherine Ryder's book, uh, Magic, in, Magic and Religion in Medieval England, is really, really good um, and sort of summarises a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about today from a church perspective, which I think is really good. So, um, yeah, that's definitely two I'd recommend. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything you want to add before we wrap up, either of you? Nothing for me. No, just thank you for having me. Excellent. My thanks to Tabitha for joining me on this episode of the podcast. In the next episode, we will rediscover Renaissance witchcraft with Professor Marion Gibson. In the meantime, please do visit the Folklore Podcast website and go to the Guests page to find out more about Tabitha's research. As always, do please share the Folklore Podcast on your own social media to help us to try and find new listeners. If you can, please leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast. These are really valuable for keeping the podcast visible in listings and drawing people's attention to it. And if you do leave a review, please do let me know so that I can thank you on the podcast. Do continue to send in your submissions for the Folklore Podcast Big Record project, and I'll be bringing some of those to you on future episodes of the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments or other feedback, do email me at thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and I'll be happy to reply to you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. 
Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.